2 Timothy chapter 1 and beginning in verse 8, we'll be going through verse 18, Lord willing. Frankly, I'm not expecting to get past verse 14, but I'm going to give it the old uh, college try, Boy Scout effort, whatever the phrase is, a boy. Verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and now has been manifested through the appearing Of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among who are Phygelius and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know the service he rendered to me at Ephesus. Lord, wow, what a text. Sometimes, Lord, we find ourselves caught up into the heavenlies when we come into your word. And I pray tonight, Lord, that we would find ourselves just in that place because this here is so rich and so deep, so profound. The words amazing grace don't even begin to do it justice. But Lord, we pray as we hear from your word and we read about this amazing salvation we have from you, that we would be drawn right into your presence. We would know that we know that we know with an assurance that cannot be shaken the confidence of our salvation from you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for saving us. In your name we pray. Amen. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but share in his sufferings. First thing, remember last week we talked about how timid and and Timothy actually is in terms of his confidence moving forward in the ministry. Paul has to get very bold and tell him, here, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And then he says, therefore, don't be ashamed. 
Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Don't be ashamed about Paul being his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The gospel brings shame. Now, there are certain places and certain areas that you can go. And here right now in our context, we can share the gospel and feel no shame. But I guarantee you, if we were to go and say whatever exact words we're pre- I'm preaching right now, you're hearing right now, and we were to go down to Farmer's Market on Saturday morning and stand on a street corner and say these words, there would be people who would come at us with hostility and aggression and seek to bring shame on us for believing and preaching the gospel. The truth of the matter is, the gospel shames people Therefore, the gospel brings shame. And people want to twist that around and put the shame on us as if we're in the wrong for saying the words of the gospel to them. How dare you call people sinners? How dare you call them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? But we cannot be ashamed of the gospel because he goes on to say here, it is the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation. Peter said in the book of Acts that there is no name under heaven among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. His name and his name alone are where we find the words of eternal life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as Paul's writing to this struggling church, He says, who is the wise, who is the scribe, who is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through this wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we, we preach Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But, but, to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Brian, can I preach? I'm going to preach. The gospel is so, so, the gospel is the very meat and bones. It's what we suck our life out of. There is no, 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 no other thing that matters more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have absolutely no hope, no hope, no hope apart from him. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we must be people who share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world is going to hell around our feet. We cannot be content to just dink along day by day and get our daily routine done and accomplished. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. We can't be content to just live our lives as if there isn't eternity at stake toward the people around us who don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
For some of us, that means just teaching our kids and raising them up in the way that they should go. For some of us, it's talking to our coworkers and our friends. For some of us, we actually have to get out further than that and go talk to people and share the gospel with them. For some of us, it's just our cousin who lives down the road. For some of us, we have to actually put shoes on our feet and go, and those feet are blessed who bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. But beloved, know this, if the world hated Jesus, the world hated Paul, the world hated Peter, the world will also have a problem with us too. But it's worth it. It's worth it because it's the means by which we've been saved and it's the means by which anybody else can be saved. The gospel is the power of God. In Romans chapter 1, Oh, there, verse 16. You guys probably know it by heart, but I'm going to read it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. He is not ashamed of the power of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Do you believe? Do you believe? Paul says here in verse 12, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? There's a reason why we say every single time we gather together, we want to walk out of those doors knowing Jesus better and loving him more than we did when we came in because we are continually being saved. It's our sanctification. It's our growth. But also people need to know him. Salvation isn't thoughts about him. Salvation is I am wholly trusting in him. But beloved, Paul goes on in verse 9. You cannot believe in him without a sovereign work of God. It's interestingly providential that this is this Sunday when you guys are heading out. That here we come to one of the single greatest texts about God's sovereignty in salvation. It's one of the very first things that Brian and I were joined together in our love of. And that's the sovereign grace of God in salvation. He says, the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Listen, 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 beloved. Before the ages began. Wow. Ha ha. What does that mean? Let's, let's go slow and look at that. God, first of all, saved us. Unfortunately, the modern way people think they get saved in fact I will be perfectly honest I heard it this morning is they prayed a sinner's prayer they said the words of salvation I think was the phrase that I heard they said the words of salvation you will look in vain in Acts in the Gospels in the epistles, in the book of Revelation, to find a phrase where it says, you say the words of salvation. The reason is, is because there are no words of salvation. Salvation is Christ choosing to save you from your sins. 
You were dead in trespasses and sins, a rebel against God, with no hope apart from his sheer grace. The Bible says that we are so dead in our trespasses and sins that we are by nature children of wrath. In Romans chapter 9, it says, It's not as though the word of God has failed, because the Jews didn't believe. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And they are not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as an offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born, listen, nor had done anything good or bad, but that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls She was told the older will serve the younger, and it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I have hated. Well, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For Moses, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who is mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. You will say to God then, why does he still find, pardon me, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God. Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why did you make me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of that very same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God was desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, he endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy that he prepared beforehand, even us whom he is called from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. That's a long passage, but you hear the point of it. You hear the just of it. You hear the meat of it. That no one stands righteous before God. Everyone stands, as it were, as his creation. And he has the freedom and the right to do with his creation whatever he sees fit, whatever he wants to do with it. And some he hardens because they are already rebel sinners against him and he doesn't owe them anything. And some, for his purpose and his grace, he chooses to save. Now, for me... I look back and I think, you know what, I I, I get it, I was bad. But more than that, I was born in sin because I was born a human being under the judgment and curse of Adam. And God saved me. 
And Rachel, God saved you. And Brian, God saved you. And we all have experienced here, hopefully, Lord willing, the saving work of God. That he saw fit to take you from the destiny that you had laid before you and take you out of that road and put you on the narrow path that leads to life rather than on the broad one that leads to destruction. He saved you by taking out your heart of stone and putting within you a heart of flesh. He saved you by calling you, which we're about to look at here, and giving you his Holy Spirit, causing you to be born again, like Jesus says in John chapter 3. He saved us and he called us to this holy calling. Romans chapter 8, in verse 28 It says, and he who searches the hearts and mind is the spirit of God because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good to those who who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Here God saved us and called us to this holy calling. And this holy calling is to be righteous in him. It's to be saved by him. It's to inherit the same inheritance that Christ has for all of his people. And none of this is because of our own works. There's a reason for that. And there, the, the reason is, is because there are no good works that we can do to be saved. This is why there's no words of salvation. If there were, we could just go around and we could tell people, hey, recite this. But there isn't. And what is required for salvation is faith. And faith comes from a change of heart. Faith comes from a new nature. Faith comes from a new hope and new affections and new love and new passions and new desires. And all of that flows to God. All of that goes back to him because all of that understands anything that I have, he deserves all glory and honor and praise for. And so I give him all the glory and honor and praise that's due to him. That's why it's not of works. Because if it was of works, I would have somewhere, some point, some way to boast. Come on, you know us. If you had a place to boast, if you had a point of boasting, if you had, if there was true what people say, that salvation is 99.9% done, and all it is is for you to do this one last thing, all you have to do is believe. Oh, won't you just believe? Look, good night. Look at all that Jesus has done for you. Doesn't that move you? Don't you get the feels? Come on. Jesus has done all this. What are you waiting for? You've heard that kind of preaching before. And that kind of faith, that kind of confidence, that kind of trust puts the ball in your court and gives you room to boast. You made a good decision. 
You were smarter than the other person who didn't. You were more emotionally sensitive or spiritually attuned to the things of the Lord. Some way, shape, or form, if it's about you doing even the 0.1%, then you're the one who accomplished it because God did all he could and now it's up to you. But beloved, believe it, pay attention. It's not because of any works. No works. No works, no works, no works, no works. It's because of his own purpose and grace. Now we can ask the question all day long, why would God choose me? Why would God choose you? And we can ponder that. And we can question that, and we can cycle that through our minds, but at the end of the day, the bottom line, God just did it because God wanted to do it. (laughs) And as crazy as this sounds, this is the most anti-boast thing I think that we could say as Christians, is that him saving me gives him greater glory than if he didn't for some reason. Then that's crazy. But God chose to do it so that he would be glorified in my salvation and redemption. And that doesn't put anything better on me. In fact, that makes me look worse, I think, maybe. Which is probably right. I don't know. When you start thinking about the mind of God in this way, the best you can do is sit back in your chair and go, Oh, Jesus, (laughs) you are awesome. You are amazing. You are brilliant. I don't even know. I don't even have words, Jesus, because you saved me. You saved me? Why? I suck. I'm so bad. I know it. But you, Lord, have saved me for your own purpose. And this purpose you gave us, look at verse 9 there, in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before time began. Before you did anything, before you existed. Before anything existed. God purposed to save you from your sins. And to do it through the work of Jesus Christ, giving us to him... And bringing the Holy Spirit toward us so that we would be caused to be born again. This inter-Trinitarian act of love whereby the Father gives us to Jesus. The Spirit comes to secure that salvation within us that Jesus paid for on the cross. All this inter-Trinitarian love we're caught up in. I don't know how to make sense of that but if I did that would be really troubling there's a reason there's so much mystery to there's a reason why heaven lasts forever 
Because it's going to take forever to figure this kind of thing out. God is an eternal being. God is infinite love. And the infinite love he expresses not in some sentimental kind of Jesus is my boyfriend kind of way. But he expresses it in showing love to the other members of the Trinity. And they're continuously showing love towards each other. And we, as expressions of that love from one to another, are all caught up in the midst of that. Whereby we fall before our faces before God in heaven in Revelation chapter 5 and say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come and words I think will escape us and so it's a good thing we have forever we can come up with a few more words to try to get our love, our joy our worship out and expressed. Somebody said to me one time when I was working at Pro Pacific Fresh, the produce place and I was sharing the gospel with them and they said heaven sounds lame what are you going to do man I get tired after like 10 minutes of doing something you know I, I have to have something very entertaining to catch my attention what in the world are you going to do forever and I told him well every time in the bible When God shows up, like actually shows up, Isaiah 6 kind of stuff, judges what is that, 8 kind of stuff, Abraham showing up kind of stuff, Joshua chapter 2 kind of stuff, people are undone. Daniel chapter 12, I mean, Daniel's an old man at the end of the book, I get that. But it says at the end of that, when God showed up and gave him that glorious revelation of chapters 10, 11, and 12, that he was standing there on the side of the river and fell down as though he were dead and had to have people come and physically help him away because he was so just radically moved by that vision of the Lord. When God actually shows up, no one's bored is my point. When we experience the Lord, it's not boring. What makes it boring, I'm going to use a C.S. Lewisism, is that we find so much contentment in the mundane that we don't look up and realize the vastness of God's love for us. Like kids playing in the gutter, which I used to do, admittedly. It's like kids playing in the gutter when they don't realize there's a Disneyland down the road. You following me? That's crude, I get. But you understand, hopefully, what I'm saying. People were so content with such little, tiny, infinitesimal, fleeting things that we need to be consumed with the awesomeness of God, which is why the sovereign grace of God is so glorious, and I love it. And I come back to it in my thoughts all the time, routinely, because there's one thing that it does, is it reduces me to who I actually am, and it shows me the great and glorious God that I have as my Savior and as my Lord. Do you have him, beloved? What? Do you have him, beloved? Oh. Good night. 
God is amazing. He has before time began given us this salvation in Christ Jesus. Beloved, this is absolutely remarkable. Go home when you're done here and try to figure out how it works that you were given to Christ before time began and you're saved here now. That God actually chose you before you even existed. Joel's wearing a Spurgeon shirt, and it reminds me of the fact that Spurgeon said, thank God he chose me before I existed, because I think he might have changed his mind once I did exist. (laughs) But he did. He chose us in him. This is all, all, all throughout the scripture. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. There in two verses is everything that I've just said. God's purpose is why we've been predestined. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So no matter how much I struggle, and I do, and, I do, and I, I'm assuming you guys do too, from time to time going, God, are you sure you, you picked right? <laughs> Me, God? I am not a great person. I'm so not. I look at a passage like this and it says, no, He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And his will is that you who believe in him would be saved. You think God can be frustrated in that? You think God can be thwarted in that? You think somehow you can squeeze out of his mighty grip? Like a bar of soap or some kind of thing? No. No. God has you eternally exactly where he wants you, exactly how he has you, because it's for his own plan and purpose. You see, Timothy is struggling. He is weak. He's vacillating. He is intimidated by whoever these weirdo guys, Hymenius and Phanigide, whatever they are, coming into the church and other people coming into the church. And he's intimidated because he's young. He's having a hard time. And what does Paul do? Paul says, buck up. God is on the throne. God saved you. God called you. God chose you. God's will has you exactly where you're at. You are his. He is yours. What do you have to fear? You see? What a great word for those who fear. What a great word for those who struggle. What a great word for those who are discouraged. What a great word for those who are depressed. Beloved, this is why we need the gospel over and over and over and over and over again. Because we need to keep coming back to the fact God chose us. God loves us. Not for my sake, ultimately. I'm penultimate at best but ultimately for his glory. And for some reason, my salvation and your salvation glorifies God enough that he was willing to come to the cross and secure your salvation. He was willing to come down in the form there, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Man of God, 
and bear all of our sin upon himself. You see, this is why when he was on the cross, he can say, it is finished because there was a plan in place for whom he was going to die. It is finished because he accomplished this plan that was put in place before time began. The Father gave us to Christ. Christ came and perfectly secured all those people who were ever going to believe in him and ever going to be saved. And the Spirit is the one who does the work of applying that to our lives. This is why we can be so sure of our redemption. Redemption is accomplished and applied. It's not just a great book. (laughs) It's the truth. And is now this glorious inter-Trinitarian council of an act of love that happened before time began was manifested in life through the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, this grace that we have in Jesus Christ is visible. There are a lot of religions out there that are abstract. That meaning that, well, I guess there's two kinds of other religions out there. One is a very theoretical kind of mysticism. And then the other is just pure works. And then, there, of course, there's combining and mingling of the two. But what they all lack is they lack God accomplishing everything and you having nothing to do with your salvation. And we see this truth visibly in the person of Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is why the resurrection is so important. Because the resurrection validates visibly for all time the truth of what happened in eternity past. The resurrection proves that Christ secured all of his people for whom he died. Because if he had ever sinned one time, the wages of sin is what? Death. But death couldn't hold him. Death had no more hold on him anymore and now on us. It says here, it became manifest, visible through the appearing of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who abolished death. Hebrews chapter 2. I know we went through, well, I guess it isn't recently anymore, is it? In Ephesians Pardon me, Hebrews chapter 2. Since, beginning of verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject lifelong to slavery. Christ came and he abolished death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, death no longer has any sting to it. And he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Ephesians chapter 8, part, chapter 8, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Actually, I'll start in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints, 
This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone the plan of the mystery hidden in ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. You see, it was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, so, I ask you, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering, for you it is your glory. Beloved, don't lose heart. We have life and immortality brought to light through us in the gospel. It was hidden in the ages past. Peter says in 2 Peter that all of the old prophets and uh, the old Bible believers of old searched diligently to try to see what kind of salvation this was going to be. But we have this mystery revealed to us that it's through Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection for us. And so therefore, we don't lose heart. We keep on keeping on. We hear the truth of the gospel over and over and over and over again. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer like I do, but I am not ashamed. In Philippians chapter 3, In verse 7, this is one of those passages where Paul's heart comes through. It's not just raw theology, but he says, All the things that I had that I counted as gain, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in the sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I know whom I have believed. He says here that knowing Jesus Christ is the surpassing worth of his entire life, That he's willing to count everything as lost for the sake of knowing Jesus better. Now that's intimidating. Because try as we might, there's not a one of us who could say that we have utterly abandoned everything for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ better. That's one of the glorious things about sanctification, becoming more like him. We learn more and more things to give up. We learn more and more things that we can entrust into him. We learn more and more how much the gospel applies to us as we see our sin in a greater and greater and greater way. Beloved, 
Don't be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of his gospel. Do you know him? Do you know whom you believed? Do you know him better than you did last week? Do you know him better than you did a month ago? Paul is convinced that one of the reasons it's worth knowing him more and more and more is that God is able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to him. Meaning his righteousness, his salvation. He's not worried about becoming or doing something that causes him to be unsaved. If you didn't do anything to get saved, what could you possibly do? If you didn't do anything to get saved, what could you possibly do to get unsaved? For me, that was one of the questions that kicked me over the cliff of Reformed theology. Knocked me over in terms of Calvinism was, if I really didn't do anything to get saved, what could I possibly do to unsave myself? You see, Paul here is saying he is convinced that he is able, God, to guard what's been entrusted to him. You see... I live, the reason why I live my life more and more and more in love with him is because I become more and more confident in his work that he has already done for me. The work I do doesn't make him love me more. The work that I do is only a display of the love he has already had for me all along. And the more I grow in that understanding, in that vision of God's glorious, amazing grace for me, The more and more and more and more and more I walk and submit in him, the more confident I am in him. It brings me to the point, hopefully, where I can echo the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8. He says this, beginning in verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who is raised and who is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is now interceding for us. Who's going to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Tribulation? No. Distress? Persecution? How about famine or nakedness or danger or even sword? No, it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are guarded as sheep to the slaughter. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Paul is convinced that God is able to guard him until that day. And so we'll close with this. Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. And the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Beloved, 
These are sound words. Maybe there are no more sound words than these ones because, beloved, this is the very foundation of our salvation. This is what we stand on before the face of God. If God were to ever say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? The answer is, Jesus Christ died for my sins. You chose me. You called me. You saved me. You placed the Holy Spirit within me. You get all the glory. All, why should I be let into heaven? I shouldn't, but for some reason, you have done it. You have saved me. You see, I know God's never going to have to ask me that question. Because he has already saved me and enabled me. So stand in these sound words. Stand in them. Cherish them. Love them. Follow them. Down the road that they take you. There in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. And by the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Guard the good deposit that's entrusted to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep continually, regularly coming back to these truths, both for yourselves and to everyone else who's around you. Because we all need to hear the gospel. As the pastor of Sovereign Joy Christian Fellowship, for as long as the Lord calls me to this calling, this is the message I will continue to preach. And I'm frankly a one-trick pony. But praise God, this is the one trick that everyone needs to hear. This is the one thing we need to hear over and over and over and over again. That Jesus Christ died for our sins. The Holy Spirit applies that to our lives, all for the glory of God the Father. Therefore, beloved, don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But stand on it, follow these words, and teach it and tell it to people who are around you. Amen? Father God, We love you and we thank you for your grace and the mercy which you've given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would not ever neglect this truth. In fact, you know what, Lord, we do regularly, but I pray that you would bring back to our mind the truth of this gospel regularly over and over. And Lord, if we need to continue to preach it to each other, may that be so. May that be true. Lord, I thank you, I thank you, I thank you for your sovereign grace in our salvation because we have no other hope in life or eternity apart from you. Thank you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.